Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. As part of the Easter story, what I want to take us to today is a significant piece of scripture that's within the Passion Week, and it's found in, in all four of the Gospels, but we're going to look today in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42, which is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think this is a significant passage for us to read, considering that our sermon series is entitled Death to Life. And just to take a little bit of time to set the scene, because I think it's extremely important. We're going to do a little bit of work this morning in discovering what is actually happening at this place. This is a very significant place that Jesus is having this moment in. And for us to understand the history behind it, I think, is vital. So we're going to walk through that just for a moment this morning. But to set up the scene, what is happening here is this. Jesus has just had the Last Supper with his disciples. Now that was a, as Pastor Pete called it, either last week or two weeks ago, it was kind of a roller coaster ride of emotions. Within that Last Supper, we saw Judas be identified. Peter told he's going to deny the Christ. We had, the, we had Jesus wash his disciples' feet. But what is really odd to me after that is Jesus shows them this this beautiful picture of humility and service, the disciples immediately begin to argue amongst themselves of who of them is going to be the greatest. So they go through this roller coaster ride of, of just Jesus just correcting them in every turn and just going through what's going to happen. I think there's confusion playing in. There's a lot of things happening here. But what is the Passover meal? Is the Passover, is the Passover meal is what celebrates the, the, the removal of the Hebrews of enslavement from the Egyptians, and it, it recognizes that moment. And in this Passover meal, there are four cups. And that's going to be significant for us later. But there are four cups. And what Jesus does is he takes the disciples through this meal. And this particular meal for this time, as they approach the third cup, and a cup in this regard represents the promise and the blessing of God. But when Jesus gets to the third cup, which is called the cup of redemption, he kind of slows everything down and he goes, guys, I want to tell you something. This third cup, this is actually me. This represents me and what I will do in the cup of redemption. This cup represents my blood for the new covenant. And whenever you do this Passover from now on, this is what this means. Jesus takes thousands of years of Jewish history and changes it in a moment, and rightly so. He makes it about himself. Jesus is also tells us that he was very eager to eat this meal. And as they go through this meal, as they go through these up and downs, the Bible tells us that they sang a hymn together, they prayed together, and then Jesus took them and crossed the Kidron Valley over to what is called the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Now, something we need to understand is that this Kidron Valley is on the western side, on the eastern side of the Temple Mount, and on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And this, this Kidron Valley is very short. It only takes a few minutes to walk through it. It's very small. But Jesus would have walked his disciples from the Temple Mount out of the eastern gate, out of that that mount down the slope through the valley and began walking up the other side to the Garden of Gethsemane. But what I think we need to understand here is what exactly is the Mount of Olives before we move forward. The Mount of Olives predates Jesus by thousands of years. It has always been there. In fact, we can even make a good, I, in my mind's eye, I could even make a good account that, that could be one of the places that Abraham stopped to ponder 
what God asked him to do with his son Isaac on top of the Temple Mount. Maybe Abraham stopped there for shelter under those trees to wrestle and struggle with what God had asked him to do. But the first time we see the Mount of Olives mentioned in Scripture is actually 2 Samuel verse chapter 15, where King David, who is the great ancestor of Jesus, King David is fleeing from Jerusalem because his son Absalom is very literally leading an army into Jerusalem in order to usurp the throne from his father. So the Bible tells us that Jesus gathers his household together and he escapes out of the eastern gate of Jerusalem. He crosses the Kidron Valley and he begins to move up the Mount of Olives. And as he's doing so, he's barefoot, his head is covered, and he's weeping loudly. The next time we see the Mount of Olives is that another son of David named Solomon in 1 Kings 11 uses the Mount of Olives to set up shrines to pagan gods for his many wives. So just think of this for a moment. You have the Temple Mount, and directly across the Temple Mount is the Mount of Olives. On the Temple Mount is where the very literal and physical presence of God sits in the Holy of Holies, and King Solomon is the one who is responsible for that presence to be there. And right on the other side of the valley, he sets up a place where his wives can worship foreign gods exactly across from it. And to be honest with you, and to be fully candid, some of the gods that were worshipped on that mountain are some of the most despicable and detestable things you'll ever read about. And there they were, worshipped right next to the presence of God. Josiah thankfully ripped them down in 2 Kings 23. Now here's where it starts to get fun. In Ezekiel eleven twenty three, when Ezekiel is having the vision of God, we know the vision that he has, the, the chariots and the wheels, and he sees this massive presence of God. Ezekiel sees the presence of God lift from the, the temple mount and go moving to the east, and it stops, and it begins to hover, and it hovers, and it takes on this full display and this full grandeur right above the Mount of Olives, and, and, and Ezekiel sees the entire thing. In Zechariah chapter 14, it indicates to us that the Mount of Olives is the place that when the Messiah comes, that's where he will touch his feet. I think it's safe for us to say that this mountain is a significant place of spiritual activity. From the worship of God to the worship of demons, this is a place where there was always spiritual turmoil. But what is so interesting is that all throughout the history of this garden, it was seen as a place of rest, a place of calm, and a place of reflection. In Jesus' time, the mountain was still rest and reflection and calm. In fact, Jesus would use this place often. The Bible tells us that whenever Jesus came to Jerusalem for ministry and for festivals, he would spend his time outside of the city in one of two places. He would either cross over the Mount of Olives to the backside where the city of Bethany was, where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha had their home. Pastor Pete has been preaching on Lazarus for the last couple weeks. That's where they lived. So when Jesus did his ministry in Jerusalem, he would cross over the mountain and he would spend his time in their home. But if Jesus didn't want to make the trip all the way across the mountain, it wasn't a very long walk, but sometimes he chose just to camp right there in the garden, which tells us this that the garden itself was used by the city to grow food. Obviously, olive trees were there. But there was, as indicated through Scripture and what we know historically, there was plots of private property, and some of this garden was actually walled off. 
So when Jesus went into this garden, it tells us that the, it tells us in the Bible that Jesus often went into this garden where he would have private moments of prayer with the, with, with the Father. It also tells us that he would have moments of reflection with the disciples, that he would teach them, and he would join company with his friends in doing ministry. It was a place where Jesus could get away and be alone. It's also the mountain that when Jesus made his triumphal entry at the beginning of the Passion Week, he jumped on the colt, the foal of the donkey. He started in Bethany, and he came up over the Mount of Olives. And as he was descending down the other side, he stopped and he wept over the city of Jerusalem because he knew it would be destroyed. Now again, here's where it gets even more fun. The same place that Jesus would pray in the garden, this Mount of Olives, is the same exact place that 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he would be ascended into heaven, the same exact spot. So imagine this with me just for a moment, the same exact spot where Ezekiel saw the spirit and the splendor of God hovering above the mountain is the same exact spot that Jesus would ascend into the mountain. And if we believe what Zechariah says in chapter 14, it is the same exact spot that Jesus is promised to return. The first place Jesus will put his foot on the ground of this earth from his ascension is right there on the Mount of Olives. And this time when he comes, he comes as the, as the coming king, as the judge of the world. And when he steps his foot for the first First time on top of that mountain, it splits in half from north to south. Are you starting to get a feel of where we are? Starting to understand what's about to happen? I think one of the things that we cannot miss is that the writer, all four of the gospel writers, want us to know that Jesus is entering into a garden that can't be lost on us. A garden, the place where humanity fell through Adam, and now the place where Jesus would begin to restore us. It's that place that we pick up our reading. In Mark chapter 14, if you want to read along, starting in verse 32, it says this. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you don't fall into the temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus was going to the garden to pray. He knew his time was coming to, to an end and he needed to be alone with the father. We know that. When we read the story, we know this. We know that Jesus knew he was going to the cross. We knew it was that night that he was going to be betrayed. He already identified Judas. So he moves over, and in our minds, we think, okay, he's, the end is coming. He's waiting to be captured. He's spending time with God. But there's something here that's indicated to us in the, in the writing of the Gospels and the words that they use. There's something that's coming. And I believe Jesus knew something different was coming. It wasn't just the cross. He knew something was going to be poured out upon him and he needed to be alone with the Father to face it. 
Verse 34 and verse 36 indicate to us what I'm talking about. And if you want to look at them, I encourage you to do so. But Jesus says this in verse 34. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Different gospels and different translations will give different words for that word overwhelmed. There's two of them I'll share with you this morning. One word is this, troubled. And in the Greek, the word troubled means this, to be astonished. The other word that is used is the word distressed. The word distressed is the compound form of the word to be amazed. So we have to just think for a moment. The word when we read overwhelmed, we can understand it, that sense of overwhelmment. Sure, we can understand he's about to be crucified. Who wouldn't be overwhelmed? But the gospel writers are painting for us a very different picture of what Jesus is going through. They say that he's astonished and that he's amazed and that in this, that Jesus is having the very breath being taken out of his lungs, that he is crumbling under the weight of something that is coming to him. We have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus about to face? What experience did Jesus never have that was causing him to be filled with so much sorrow that he was astonished, that he was amazed? In a way, it caught him completely off guard. What could have caught Jesus completely off guard? Verse 36 tells us, he says this, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Earlier that night, Jesus led the Passover meal where he used a Passover cup to show himself as the plan of God's redemption. But what cup was he talking about now? What was the cup? He's using it as an illustration to explain what's happening to him. What was the cup that Jesus was talking about? Throughout scripture, a cup is used to symbolize God's promise, God's blessing, God's presence, God's provision, grace and mercy being poured upon people. But there are, there's another cup. It's called the cup of God's wrath. And in this situation, it's not the wrath of Roman nails or a Roman cross or a whip or a crown of thorns. What this cup is, is divine wrath. It's the divine wrath that is causing Jesus to fall to his face before the Father in prayer. What is this? Let's explain this a little bit more. What Jesus is probably referring to here is Jeremiah 25. There's other passages in scripture that talk about it, but Jeremiah 25 is probably the most vivid passage we have that explains the cup of God's wrath. In Jeremiah 25, what God says to Jeremiah, says, Jeremiah, hold out a cup, a cup that is full of the wine of my wrath, which I will pour upon the nations. The nations of the world are to drink this cup. And what it's talking about is the cup of justice, the cup of a righteous God being poured out upon the sins and offenses that have come against him. It is a cup that is poured out on the sin of humanity that has been stored up throughout the millennium. If you need a visual, very, very realistically, if you need a visual of the cup of wrath to help you understand what Jesus is beginning to drink, then go back to the Passover meal. Go back to what that Passover meal represents. Go back to the Exodus of Egypt. What happened there to the Egyptians? 10 plagues of God's wrath were poured upon an entire country and it crumbled them. It crippled an entire nation. In this moment, 
as Jesus moves into the garden, he takes 12 with him. He tells them to stay, to stop. He then takes three more, Peter, James, and John. He moves into this private, walled area of the garden where he can be alone. And right there at the entrance, he tells Peter, James, and John, stop here, stay, pray, keep watch. I'm going a little farther. And as Jesus moves, a stone's throw away, the Bible says, as I see this happening, with every step Jesus takes deeper into the garden, this cup begins to be poured out upon him. And by the time he reaches the place where he would pray, he is so overwhelmed that he can't stand. He is so overwhelmed that his body feels like it's going to die and it drives the son of God to his face in prayer. In this moment, for the first time in eternity, he that knew no sin began to take our sins and the eternal relationship of father and son begins to be stretched thin. He begins to drink in the penalty that's deserved by all of us for, this, for our sins. It's the punishment that we all deserve. It's an eternity's worth of punishment that Jesus now begins to drink in in this garden. It's something we can't comprehend. Something we'll never know. But it is a cup that has to be drunk in order for the justice of God to be satisfied. And as we add more to this scene, as we read more of the scriptures and we add more to what is happening to Jesus in this moment, not only is this divine wrath being poured upon him, but the sin and the weight of all mankind for all time is beginning to come against him. The weight of the world is now beginning to become full pressed on the shoulders of Jesus. His divine nature is tasting the separation from God. He's feeling the weight and ugliness of sin. It was a full assault on the holiness of Jesus. He tastes this cup and he begins to recoil. Not only was the wrath of God being poured out, the weight of the world and sin upon him, but as Jesus indicates to us, that the disciples should pray that they won't fall to temptation. The Bible is very clear in explaining to us the tempter is there as well. Which means the wrath of God is being poured out. The sin of humanity upon the shoulders of Christ. And now comes Satan with every vile lie of hell that he can think of and he pours it into the ear of Jesus. We cannot miss the significance of this moment, church. This moment is everything because this is the moment Jesus wins the victory for us. Jesus has to go to the Father three times in prayer. And each time he falls to his face in agony, pleading with the Father, if it's possible, take this. Very simply and very humanly, I would say, Jesus is looking for a plan B. But from what we read in the sin of Adam in the garden, what we see in the promise made to Abraham and Moses and David, that the only way for humanity to be saved is if the Son of God embraces the will of the Father and he drinks the fullness of this cup for us. And we see in the scriptures that Jesus' countenance begins to change. That every time he bows to pray, every time he falls to the floor, grasps at the dirt around him, and he suffers in agony, there's something amazing that begins to happen in the text. 
Jesus' words begin to change. And he changes them. The Father, not my will, but your will be done. What do we see here? We see Jesus resolving and resigning himself to the will of God. In this moment, we see the perfect example of what wrestling with God's will looks like and what total and complete surrender looks like. You know, many scholars believe that the victory of Calvary wasn't simply won on the cross. That when Jesus went to the cross and he cried out, it is finished, that wasn't the moment that the victory is won. But the, the words, it is finished, implies that Jesus has drank the fullness of the cup. He has drank the wrath of God that was poured out upon him. It is completed. It is over. The wrath of God has been satisfied. There is now justice. There is now peace. And there is now possibility with relationship with God the Father. He did it. But the victory that Jesus gained for humanity on that night was ultimately won in the garden. Why? Because he fully embraced the will of his father and he surrendered himself to his captors. The final time Jesus stands to pray, he's covered in blood, sweat, tears, and the very dust of the earth he used to form Adam with. And this time when he stands, he stands in power and authority. And because Jesus surrendered to the will of God, he is victorious. And through this victory, we can move from death to life. What do we find here? Two things I want to share with you that we find here. Number one, Jesus' death moves all who would believe from death to life. This is what Ephesians chapter two and verse eight says. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God. John 5, 24 says this, very truly, this is Jesus speaking. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. The first thing we have to understand, the first thing we must take in is at the very moment that we place our faith in him, we can stand before God as one who has been forgiven, filled with the Holy Spirit and now set for an eternity with him. At a very moment, at the blink of an eye, that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now saved, you are now covered by the blood, the wrath of God that was saved against you was drank by Jesus, you gave Jesus the cup of wrath that, was, that you deserved, you gave it to him, you accepted his grace, and in that moment, you belong to him. The second thing it shows us, I believe showed us here, although we cannot understand what Jesus was taking, there's no way we can put ourselves in Jesus' place, there's no way. In fact, if we look at anyone in this story, we'd end up being more like Peter or James or John or Judas or the captors. But we can't understand what Jesus is taking. But because of God's grace, we can look at Jesus and we can follow an example that he set for us. An example of what it means to embrace the will of God as a follower of Christ. You know, as I was thinking about this sermon this week, I realized that Embracing the will of God is not always an easy thing. I think Jesus shows here that embracing the will of God sometimes can be a struggle. But he also shows us it's okay to struggle with it. It's okay. It's okay to struggle with what God asks us to do at times. 
I mean, I know personally that figuring out the will of God for my life, just figuring out what God wants me to do is not always the easiest thing. How many of you have ever been there before? Where you're trying to make a decision in your life and you have no idea where God is leading you, but you're doing the best you can. That's hard enough. Sometimes it's hard enough. It takes prayer and fasting, reading scripture, and really seeking God to understand what his will is at times in our life. But what can be even more difficult is to know the will of God, but to know it's taking you somewhere you do not desire to go. But in the example of Jesus, and in the teaching of Jesus, he teaches us how to walk through this. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says this, Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. As you read this verse, we understand this verse is a complete death to self. That is what Jesus is asking of us in this verse. Die to yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. What we find very interesting here is simply this, that the word Jesus used for day or daily follow me, this is very emphatically, every single day, day by day by day by day, the moment that you wake up in the morning, Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus is asking you to wake up, to see the cross before you, to willingly embrace it, to pick up that cross. And as you leave your home, as you go out and start today, <clears throat> to pick up that cross and to follow him with everything you have inside of you. The Greek is very emphatic, day in, day after day after day. Pick up your cross, choose to follow, and follow me. It's laying ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And as we do so, it demands a complete change of attitude, habit, character, and desire. As a worship team is coming, I had a great blessing <clears throat> happen a few months ago. And, and I heard... I heard Somebody, tell me, somebody told me a story, um, and, and what happened is this. Uh, I got to begin a, a men's small group here at City Church, and we have a great group of young professionals uh, that are coming out. So if you're a guy in City Church looking for a small group, I'm your man. Come find me. But as we, this past Monday as we met, we had this moment where we were talking through these scriptures, and a young man began sharing in our group about something that really challenged his heart in here and an example that he shared. And, I, and as he told it, I was like, man, that's really great. But as I worked on it throughout the week, I was like, man, that is awesome. And what it's this, is that this young man's father was a school teacher, elementary school teacher. And part of his teaching, part of the burden he had for his students, from his faith, he believed very really that God wanted him to share the love of Christ with these students in any way that he could, through serving them, being the first, through being a great teacher, but at the same time, openly sharing his faith in Christ when he could. I think that's impressive. But what makes it even more impressive is simply this, that as this young man told me this story, he said every single day his father would wake up and he would pray, and he would know that at any moment, at any time during that day, that if he shared his faith with these kids or he let his faith come out or he showed that he was a Christian, there was a very real reality that he could lose his job. And he woke up every single day determined 
to do the will of God, even if it cost him his job. Following the will of God for us as Christians can sometimes mean that we lose things in our lives. Job, relationships, opportunities, reputation. It subjects us to modern persecution of being mocked, being outcasts. It can remove our sense of security. But there's another promise that Jesus gives us that for those who would deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow him, Jesus also said these words, that any person who looks to save their life will lose it, but any person who looks to lose their life for my sake, that's when you'll find it. And what Jesus is talking about here is not the final moment to give your life for Christ. Yes, that has happened and it does happen. But what Jesus is talking about here is a complete surrender to the will of God to the point where we might lose things in our life. But what he promises us is that if we lose it, that's when we truly come alive. When we surrender ourselves to the will of God daily, day after day after day, Jesus tells us we move from death to life and we become more alive in him every single day. That's amazing, church. And that's where we need to live. A few things that I would share as we close is that there are times in our life where we may not agree with God. We may not agree with the direction that he's taking us. But humbled prayer and submission following the example of Jesus and being on our face before the Father will get us to embrace it because God will slowly align our will with his. He will slowly tell us it's okay. Yeah, this is gonna be difficult. Yes, this is gonna be hard. Yes, this is the cup I've given you to drink, but I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I will bring you through this. And when you do, you will come alive. One of the things that Jesus shows us here through Jesus is that the deeper our anguish, the longer the prayer and the longer it might take, but the more we present ourselves to the Father, we will eventually get to where he needs us to be. And in that, there is no safer place to be. Church, will you stand with me today? Few things that we take away from this as we pray and as we begin to, begin to let God work in our hearts and put feet to our faith. The first thing is this, God's will will be done. The Bible is clear. His will will be accomplished, but it's worth it. It's worth it. I think Jesus also shows us here to not be afraid to struggle with the will of God, to be honest with it. Jesus' prayer in that garden was anything but robotic. It was anything but mechanical. It was deep. It was heartfelt. It was painful. It was passionate. It was real. And Jesus shows us you can go to the Father in your deepest moments and it'll be real. Go there with him. Be honest with God and he will work with you. Choose daily to surrender to his will and you will move from death to life. My last challenge before we worship is this. 
What do you need to talk to God about today? What are you struggling with in his will? What is God calling you to do? That if you're honest with yourself, you don't know that you can do it. But if you surrender to his will, you can't.